Okay, we're going to get started. Hi, everyone. Welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. Those of you who are here in person, those of you who are joining us online. Uh, my name is Lauren Bialystok. I'm acting director of the Center for Ethics. Very pleased to welcome you to the second event in our new series on educational ethics. Um, today, we'll be hearing a talk from Christopher Martin. And Chris has been my friend and colleague for a number of years. He's at the University of British Columbia, Okanagan. He's associate professor in the Faculty of Education and also uh, the Department of Economics, Philosophy and Political Science, and also the Faculty of Management. Um, he works in an assortment of issues in educational ethics and philosophy of education, um, especially in higher education. He's the author of several books. And most recently he wrote a book called The Right to Higher Education, which was published by Oxford in 2022. And it was the winner of the Outstanding Book Award at the recent uh, North American Association for Philosophy of Education conference. And the book is rightly getting a lot of attention and a lot of uh, discussion. So I'm really pleased that Chris could come here today and pick your brains about his argument and, and uh, thinking about the ethics of higher education. So we'll do our usual thing. Chris will give us a talk. Um, I'll field questions. We'll have some nice discussion and you'll drink coffee. Sound like a good plan? I like the sound of it. Okay, welcome, Chris. Thank you. Take awesome. Um, perfect. Well, thanks to those on hi to those online, and, and thanks uh, everyone for coming out today and, and listening. Um, very excited to share these these ideas with you, and, and look forward to the discussion after. Um, thanks as well to the center and to, to Lauren uh, for the invitation and the opportunity. Um, so, the the question really that animates obviously the the book itself was to ask the question: uh, Should there be uh, a right to higher education. And the answer that I give is yes, there should. Um, now, what I'm going to do in this talk is I'm going to walk through some of the key arguments that I offer in support of that right. And these arguments are uh, taken from a recent book of mine, which Lauren already mentioned, called The Right to Higher Education, uh, Political Theory. Um, and the book, I think, really is kind of a deceptively straightforward thought experiment. I ask, if there was a right to higher education, what would be its most plausible justification. Or another way to look at it is, um, what would higher education under a rights conception look like and, and would it be desirable? So I don't kind of come out the gate just making the assumption that we have the right. It's more, could we could we offer a justification? And so um, quickly I've discovered as I was working through this question, answering it involves a lot of other considerations, obviously, right? And those considerations include, but are not limited to, the value of education across the lifespan, uh, the role of, of formal educational institutions in adult life, um, how the state should act on these institutions, and so on. And as uh, I'll aim to show today, um, answering in the affirmative, saying yes, there's a right to higher education, actually would come with a lot more than free university. In fact, it might mean a significant broadening of our idea of what post-school education should look like in a liberal democracy. Okay, so I have the talk divided into kind of three basic sections. So first, I'll spend a bit of time explaining why I think the question of a right to higher education matters, and I'll focus on what I what seems to me are some some key challenges that make the idea of a right to higher education seem counterintuitive or implausible right out the gate. 
Uh, and then I'll go on to uh, outline some of the key steps uh, involved in my attempt to justify that right. And then, if time allows, I'll look at some uh, recent objections that the argument uh, has gotten in the literature. And I think these are, are worth walking through, not only because it's you know, helpful to run through objections, but, but I think they can also help illustrate what a rights conception, at least in the accounts or the version of it that I give, uh, could look like in practice, um, and as well as its, its scope and limitations. So, um, why uh, the why does the right to higher education matter? Well, in this part of the talk, I'll look at why uh, I think the justifiability of the right to higher education matters. First, I'll look at how there seems to be this very like stark difference between the way we talk about ethics and values in basic education versus uh, higher education and why they might differ. Uh, then I'll look at some conceptual issues or problems that might explain this difference. And then I'll propose or at least identify what I think is a way to get around those conceptual problems, no worries, uh, which, that's okay. um, which, which then I think could potentially clear a path to the justification. So I'm really interested in digging into like the larger, the larger issues behind the right, and then I'll offer some justifications after. But I think these conceptual challenges, at least as I understand them, are uh, kind of interesting uh, in and of themselves. Okay, so why does the right to higher education matter is a kind of a philosophical question. Um, well, I think it seems to be the case that liberal uh, democratic societies are largely on board with the idea of basic education as a kind of entitlement. Um, we grant that there's uh, important social and individual benefits to be gained from ensuring that everyone gets a decent basic education, ideally speaking. And I think that's a generally accepted view. Um, so we're well practiced at sort of singing the praises of educational goods for children. In particular, we enumerate the many ways in which uh, it'll help them to become uh, better citizens, more productive workers, uh, better all around people. Uh, we may disagree with the extent to which such an education should be managed by the state, uh, what the curriculum should look like, and how well it should be resourced. But few people seem to believe that education is something that should not be provided uh, to all citizens when they're, when they're children. And then curiously enough, I think this kind of educational generosity uh, quickly evaporates when we turn to the question of higher education. To be sure, we often point to the importance of higher education for an educated society. Uh, economists emphasize its role in uh, economic growth, particularly with respect to, uh, to human capital. Uh, university presidents talk about its contributions to uh, democratic citizenship. But the conversation, I think, about education changes in, in important ways. Um, we see more talk about competition for university places, elite admissions, and, and SAT SAT scores in the US context. So I would say that what we might call problems of status, uh, stratification, and selectivity capture, I think, as much, if not more, of our moral attention uh, in higher education than maybe the value and quality of what these institutions are aiming to achieve. So my point is that, um, in a very general sense, the move from educational provision for children uh, to educational provision for adults marks a strange uh, transformation in the public conversation about its value and importance. Um, it changes from one that um, focuses on how it can improve the lives of all individuals to one preoccupied with fairness, competition, merit, desert, personal responsibility, and so on. And this is unfortunately all too, I think, understandable a transformation because you know, compulsory or basic education is far from perfect, right? I'm not suggesting that it's ideal, but it's at least animated 
by an ideal, which is that everyone can go and everyone should be able to benefit. But we don't talk about higher education this way at all. We're, we're more at home in saying that some people are sufficiently talented or at least sufficiently prepared to benefit from a higher education while others are not. And we built elaborate regimes of testing and financing and admissions in order to rationalize this approach. Now, it's important like that I proceed with a certain amount of charity here. Uh, I'm not just saying that this change in the conversation is inherently bad or totally arbitrary or done in bad faith. And in fact, I think there's at least two good conceptual reasons that kind of help to explain this state of affairs. And I'll identify two. So the first is, it seems to me that there's um, two really important conceptual constraints that could go some way to explaining why talk about higher education is different than basic education. And basically, these constraints come down to the fact that a, that a, a rights-founded conception, one that kind of said that the entitlement that begins in schooling would continue into adult years, um, would need to demonstrate that that education is so important for individual citizens that it really needs to be allocated like an entitlement at that stage as well. And I think when you think about things that way, two problems immediately jump out when we try to do that. So the first is what you, know, I, I, you might call a normative weight problem, right? That's what I call it. Maybe there's a better way to phrase it. But <clears throat> it seems to be the case that the stronger the claim we make about the value of higher education, the more it sounds like something that should be addressed at the compulsory level. <clears throat> so think about it this way, and I use a few examples, but the example of, of citizenship might be one. So imagine we were to say something like, higher education makes for better citizens, and making better citizens is so important that we should make higher education a right. But if education can make citizens who already have basic education even better in some way, it seems that we should try and achieve that in a compulsory system where everyone is likely to go, or at least most everyone is likely to go, and we would have some equal opportunity to be bettered in that way. Otherwise, the justification of a right to higher education seems to conflict with the very idea of equal citizenship. So you can imagine a system, or you would risk a system where, you know, some are deemed excellent citizens because they went to higher education, right? And then others merely average because they only completed the basic component just because of the choices that they make. So the example here is like citizenship versus citizenship plus. Seems to be an odd way to parse it out. Um, the example here being that, again, the if you really, really tried to make an identify what makes education really valuable at that higher level, you start asking questions like, okay, well, why wouldn't you, why wouldn't you put it in the compulsory system? The other one is really, uh, I call it the paternalistic aims problem. Um, and generally speaking, I think, and, and quite unlike children, we think that adults should have some uh, say in what their uh, basic educational goals are. But uh, saying that higher education is, is home to a value or an aim that's so important, it should be a right, can easily slide into a kind of illegitimate paternalism. Uh, for example, if we say that justifying the purpose of higher education, uh, or sorry, if we say that a justifying purpose uh, behind a right to higher education is to produce better citizens, continuing from the last example, this seems to overrule the independence of adult learners that may have very different reasons for seeking out that education. So that maybe they don't see that as the fundamental purpose, but they want to attend anyways. So in this case, it would mean that like, no matter why you wanted higher education, this argument says, you should want to higher education to become a better citizen. And that's gonna inform what you learn in the system, regardless of what you might want to learn. And on this view, it makes this kind of presumption that 
leaders of the higher education system know better than citizens themselves. And that seems to risk a kind of paternalism. It isn't broadly described, I go into more detail in, in the book, but I think that these two conceptual constraints can also help to explain how our ideas and assumptions about higher education are relevantly different from basic education. And these differences also uh, have some practical implications as well. And I'll kind of run through this, the problem again, but using that practical uh, example. So here, here we, talk, we would talk about um, the relationship between how we, how we see individuals' interests being served in higher education versus broader social interests. So it seems to be the case that higher education institutions act in a market. They compete for students, uh, donors, and for the status they need to attract those students and donors. Liberal democratic in uh, states intervene in this market for different reasons, sometimes to increase efficiency or to introduce in incentives, and sometimes to promote equality. Yet ultimately, and this is key, I think, the wants and preferences of the student as a kind of consumer drive the shape and scope of the system. And in this way, higher education is responsive to what is sometimes referred to as the principle of consumer sovereignty. And consumer sovereignty would derive from the view that citizens should be empowered to demand those goods that they want instead of delegating that power to some other authority like the state. If I want a flat screen TV, I use my money to demand a TV. I put my money out and say, I would like to buy this, please. And this, but the state doesn't allocate it to me, right? So to say that consumer sovereignty extends to higher education is to mean that people's access to higher education goods should be in the main free from political authority and other forms of paternalistic interference. Education is but one of many resources or opportunities or goods that citizens are free to avail of, and markets help to ensure that they can use their current or future economic power to demand those specific goods and services. Okay. Um, I'll get to the two problems in the end of the slide. I'll address those a little later. Okay, so here's here what someone say, okay. Maybe that's the case descriptively, but what about fairness, right? Fairness considerations are also an important part of the uh, conversation about uh, uh, higher education. Um, well, I'm not saying that uh, fairness has no bearing on the question of higher ed. Higher education goods do uh, far more than satisfy discrete wants and preferences that make available highly prized and scarce uh, educational and sorry, socioeconomic opportunities. And these opportunities have powerful effects on the relative equality of citizens economically and in their capacity to pursue private aims and in their ability to effectively engage in public and political matters. And in that way, higher education isn't like buying a flat screen or TV. So for example, in the first case, it can improve the objective welfare and resources that individuals come to have, right? So access to higher education can make a real difference in terms of uh, citizens' life chances with respect to market outcomes. So we talk about the college premium, that boost in, in average earnings you can expect on graduation, but also non-market outcomes like health relationships and uh, political participation. And then secondly, because higher education makes a difference in the welfare and resources citizens come to have, it can make an objective difference in terms of how citizens stand in relation to each other in terms of resources and welfare. And it does this by distributing the benefits and burdens of higher education goods across the entire society, regardless who actually receives them, right? So it can take resources away from the public in order to make higher education less costly upfront 
from those who want to attend, for example. Or it can reduce public expenditure and let private costs rise. It can make it easier for already well-off citizens to access higher education goods, or it can try to level the playing field. So higher education is a good use consumption has powerful uh, socioeconomic consequences for individual citizens and for relative equality between citizens. So all liberal citizens have an interest in how these consequences are managed, even when they don't directly access those educational goods in and of themselves. And this, of course, would seem to then justify certain limited forms of state interference in its provision on the distributive side of things. Okay, so this leads to just another way in which I'm trying to think about what might make the case for higher education different, or sorry, difficult. And the way I cash this out, or I, as I term it in the book, is kind of a, leads to, I think, kind of a normative imbalance or a normative asymmetry in terms of the seriousness which we address two dimensions of uh, the role of educational institutions in people's lives. Um, and here, here's what I, what I mean. So, uh, so, for example, political philosophers uh, sometimes or often hold that for individual citizens, access to a basic public education is fundamental uh, to their participation in society. It involves much more than the mere uh, protection uh, of a child's uh, freedom. It actually means providing them with resources and opportunities necessary for the cultivation of a kind of capacity for freedom. And this is sometimes called personal autonomy. Now I'll talk about personal autonomy later because it is, does play a really important role in, in the argument. Um, but it's enough to say here that this capacity for personal autonomy involves more than just making consumer choices, right? So kid, we don't just educate kids so they can choose between different kinds of flat screen TVs. Um, it requires a capacity for good judgment in life generally. Um, for example, how to live, how to treat others, how to participate in community and, and so on. In short, we don't just let children decide what the basic education, uh, basic aims of education are. We decide for them because we're concerned about their, their interests long term. Um, their interests as future citizens are at stake. And so the state is responsible for this interest. And we take this interest very seriously. And that could explain, for example, or at least could provide a plausible justification for something like public schooling. So what I'm trying to say here is that in terms of how People who are interested in like the normative implications of education in a liberal democracy have a lot to say about the role of schools in help in advancing the individual interests of students. And it is much more than just saying letting them go on to make free choices. It's actually a very, you know, a conversation about the capacities that they would need to live well. But the state's responsibility, of course, doesn't end there. It's also responsible for making sure that the school system is fair, ideally speaking. So for example, uh, when wealthy citizens opt out of public education in order to gain competitive advantage for their children through private schooling, the liberal state should take reasonable measures to mitigate this unfair advantage. So for example, this could justify different forms of in interference, again, in the spirit of leveling the playing field. Uh, it might insist that those citizens still pay into the public system, or it might even impose restrictions on the nature and scope of private schooling in order to prevent unfair advantage. Again, I'm speaking in, in ideal terms here. This is all to say that our individual interests in a basic education and the fair distribution of that education has immense civic relevance. And both are, are clearly, I think, a matter of justice. So I've trained a uh, set out here on the, on the slide. 
So on, on this view, our conception of compulsory or basic education has a kind of symmetrical quality. Justice works uh, to secure fair outcomes in both the distributive sphere and in terms of our individual interest in living free life. But if what I've said before about these conceptual restrictions and how they play a practically trap, higher education doesn't seem to be balanced in that way. So when we talk about the, the ethics of higher education in, in, a, in, a, in a philosophical sense, we certainly focus on this distributive dimension of higher education. And in fact, I, I would say much of the focus is on um, questions around fair equality of opportunity, for example. Um, but it tends to leave the individual value of higher education exactly as consumer sovereignty suggests that it should. It's the freedom to consume educational goods and services. So put differently, it seems that our conception of higher education is relatively agnostic about its value for the individual. Agnostic because individual citizens should be free to make their own educational choices anyways. And agnostic because the reason citizens have for higher education is theirs alone to decide. It's, it's private. So consequently, we tend to, and I'm speaking in broad terms, admittedly, we tend to see the distributive consequences of higher education as being very much a concern for justice. Fair admissions, tuition fees, so on, right? These kinds of debates. But for individual citizens, from the point of view of those citizens, that is, the value, desirability, and general meaning and significance of accessing a higher education in their life comes down to the particular plan in life they have in view. Therefore, on this, on this descriptive kind of offering, higher education goods are certainly recognized as valuable, and they're certainly a matter of justice, but with respect to the individual, they're non-essential in the pursuit of that life. So some citizens will desire a higher education, but perhaps they won't qualify for admission. Other citizens will qualify uh, for admission, but may just not have a desire to do more schooling. And assuming that fairness obtains in the background, because that's going to be an important part of this, neither scenario should be morally troubling. As important as such goods may be for some, and as much of an impact as it might have on the economic lives of citizens who access them, at the end of the day, the goods of higher education are not by themselves fundamental to liberal citizenship in the same way that we think, at least, or at least how philosophers tend to, in the liberal tradition, talk about uh, basic uh, schooling or basic education. So what is all this leading up to? Um, I think that um, it's, as I, I come up with that analysis, and I think that, or at least as I understand it, the analysis helps get us to a more concrete sense of the problem that would be facing any attempt to justify uh, a right to higher education. So to recap and kind of tie these threads together and I'll revisit the liberal argument again. So let, let, let's start again with the observation that liberal democracies already recognize an individual entitlement to some kind of basic education. And we know that many philosophers sympathetic to liberal democracy tend to think that the strongest or at least the most plausible argument for this entitlement is that every liberal citizen, regardless of who they are, has an interest in personal autonomy, this kind of basic autonomy interest. But by that, I mean, it's basic to liberal citizenship that we have some degree of agency uh, over our own lives in terms of how we want to live and who we want to aspire to become. However, to make good on this interest, we need some further cultivation or development. Right? 
And this is especially the case in a, in a complex and plural society with lots of different options and ways of living. And this is an educational requirement. So this gets us to the schooling question, right? We need schools that can teach our general skills like literacy and numeracy that allow us to navigate the world around us. It could include knowledge and a general understanding of society. But of course we can debate its nature and scope, right? It could require the cultivation of particular intellectual or moral habits. Um, whatever it looks like though, the liberal state shouldn't, and this is the important point, whatever it looks like, the liberal state shouldn't require children to compete for or pay for this education. But notice when this education is complete, when that autonomy interest has been satisfied, when the liberal state has allocated enough goods more or less sufficient to develop this uh, capacity for personal autonomy, the task is considered done and the entitlement exhausted, right? There's no principled reason to go beyond the K-12 stage in terms of state allocation. If you wanna get more education, you can get more, but now you're considered to be presumptively autonomous and any further education is just a way to enhance your life in your own particular way. You take individual responsibility for your own education and not the state. So um, this I think, and again, I'm speaking in broad terms, but I think it does kind of get to what I think, or it seems to me is a strange discontinuity in terms of the importance we assign to education between childhood and uh, adulthood. And this discontinuity then informs how education is allocated on a principal basis, right? So we go uh, from education as a basic good for everyone uh, to education as an opportunity that people should compete for, ideally under some condition of fair equality of opportunity, um, or, or just pay for it if they want it uh, badly enough. So I guess, the way to ask the question, at least to start the question on higher education rights, is to say, is this correct, right? Is this the right view? Is there an argument for going beyond the K-12 threshold of entitlement, a principled argument? Um, and can this argument get us around the two conceptual issues that I mentioned earlier? And I think there is, and uh, we can get there, I think, in uh, three basic steps. Um, okay, so these are the... I mean, there's a number of arguments in the book, but I think the three core arguments kind of proceed in the following sequence. Um, so that we have a, a bit of a, a clear picture of the challenges facing uh, the case for right to higher education, we can move on to an attempt to justify that right. And you do this by making three arguments. So the first argument is about the value of education over the lifespan. So what I'm gonna do here is I'm gonna try and say, whatever argument you have for uh, the educational value uh, so the value of education in childhood, we can make a plausible extension of that value across the lifespan. Um, and then the next argument is to uh, explain, okay, given extending that account of educational value, um, do we have a role for formal educational institutions as well at that stage of life? And then finally, um, I say, given those two pieces, well, what kind of uh, distributive principles would be characteristic features of a kind of institution responsible for that education at the adult stage of life. And what one gets on the other side of that argument, I, I would claim, is a rights conception of higher education, but a lot more than that. And I'll explain as I get towards the end of the argument. Okay, so let's uh, make sure I'm okay with time here. Let's get to the first step. So. The first step in the argument involves challenging the view that adults no longer have an interest in education for autonomy reasons. 
And helpful here, I think, is the conception of autonomy, of personal autonomy advanced by uh, the philosopher Joseph Raz. So as I understand it, Raz argues that personal autonomy involves more than just a, a capacity to reflect on and choose amongst different preferences. It's more than something you just cultivate, cultivate in a one-off sense and you're done. Um, he describes autonomy as being more like a, a project or achievement. They quote him here as follows. Um, an autonomous person is part author of his own life. The autonomous person's life is marked not by what it is, but also by what it might have been and by the way it became what it is. A person is autonomy, autonomous only if he has a variety of acceptable options available to him to choose from and his life because of what, uh, because of what it is through his choice of some of these options. So on this view, a, a capacity for autonomy to be able to achieve self-determined goals has, and I'll quote him again, but not on the slide, and this is, I think this is very much key to the argument I'm trying to make, right? It is partly to do with the state of the individual concerned, their soundness of mind, their capacity for rational thought and action, and so on. Let's take that. But also partly to do with the circumstances of their life, especially that that person has a sufficient range of significant options available to them at different stages of life. And I, in the book, I kind of italicize that. That's really important emphasis that I make, that, that you have to have a range of options available to you at various stages of life. Both conditions need to obtain for um, a self-determined life. So in the first case, the, the, the state of mind case, if a person doesn't have the ability to identify and pursue goals worth seeking, they cannot be said to be acting autonomously. But second, even if they have the capacity to choose, it may be that there are few worthwhile choices on offer. So we would not say that that person is living a meaningfully self-determined life. So imagine, for example, someone whose family has told them that they must pursue a profession. And they're given the choice of law or medicine, but they're strictly forbidden from even contemplating anything else outside this narrow range. There's a sense in which the student has a, a, a significantly restricted range of options. They can choose a profession, but they can only be a professional, right? So that person is not in a good position to be the author of their own life as his account. So it's the second condition, I think, that deserves a lot more normative attention. Um, and I will argue helps us understand why the value of education has more continuity over the lifespan than we tend to assume. This gives us to the second part of the educational value argument. Trying to grab another sip here. So, so what I do here is I, I kind of take this this Razian idea and I try and track it across different stages of of, of um, development and and education. So, I believe that the two conditions of autonomy, the state of the individual and the environment uh, within which the individual determines their aims and goals roughly parallels, and it is a rough distinction, between what we might call the, an instilling and a supporting focus of an autonomy-promoting education. And um, one may think of instilling uh, education as educational efforts that are directed at altering or bettering the state of uh, the individual, perhaps cognitively or intellectually, in a general sense. However, I argue that education can also support the autonomous pursuit of a good life by opening up options in the environment around the individual 
that would not otherwise be accessible to them, even when that individual is in full possession of the conditions associated with an autonomous state of mind. Now, that's a fairly abstract rendering, so I have an example here, um, sort of revised from what I used in the book. So in order to get a handle on the relevance of this distinction for education, um, consider someone in their like retirement years and they decide that they want to incorporate competitive athletics into their life. They were not particularly active before, but they're, they want, they've kind of revised some of their priorities in life and they want to take things in that direction. And they live in an athletically focused city with plenty of sports leagues and relevant facilities and, and a climate that, that supports winter and summer events. We might initially think that this individual is primed to satisfy both of Raz's conditions. So they're in a state of mind that enables them to set out on a new direction in life, right? And they find themselves in circumstances that seem to be able to support that direction. But imagine that this person is unlucky, right? They have little in the way of raw athletic talent uh, or physical conditioning, nor did they encounter many opportunities to acquire an understanding of the norms and values of competitive athletics, such as training or goal setting, teamwork, mental fitness, we could come up with a more robust account. The point is that there's a sense in which the available options are not really available to them, right? By this, I mean, while the, while the person is successfully deliberated on and chosen amongst available options, right? Because they're in that environment where they could choose it. They haven't been coerced into making that choice, nor are they setting out to achieve ends or goals that have no plausible existence in the environment around them. They're unlikely to succeed in accessing um, or flourishing within that chosen option, competitive athletics. They are very unlikely to realize their, particularly, their particular chosen end in practice. So I think you know it's, it's a very basic example, but it, I think it tells us something important about the relationship between personal autonomy and education that's often overlooked. Education can is not only required in order to prepare citizens for the fact of options in a abstract and general sense, like preparing children for the many things that are out in the world, but also enables those citizens to access and flourish within particular activities, right, that reflect their choices. Okay. So, uh, sorry, I lost my place. Okay, here we go. Uh, so, <laughs> to tie this all together, I think it, if this is the case, it's simply wrong to think that adults don't have as fundamental an interest in education as do adults. Think about what personal autonomy looks like in practice on this resonance, right? It involves the pursuit of self-determined goals, putting that agency I was talking about earlier to good use. We set it to participate in important activities like art or athletics or the family or community, right? And yes, meaningful employment. That's going to be part of the story. These are worthwhile activities uh, that when we're able to fully participate in them, contribute to our flourishing and the flourishing of others. Uh, however, at least some worthwhile activities are valuable, but are really difficult to access, right? Unless we acquire those forms of knowledge and understanding and skill. So for example, you know, we, we, we have to learn to read music and understand music in order to participate at a certain level. And a general education is not always gonna close the gap between what you want to do and what you need to do, know in order to succeed at it. And I think this is where the first cracks begin to show in our current conception of higher education. So an education consistent with, I think, our liberal democratic commitments 
should recognize that education has a key role to play uh, in the continued support of autonomy beyond that kind of foundational level. It provides different educational pathways that empower us to freely participate in complex activities. And if this is right, we have more continuity in the value of education across the lifespan than we tend to assume. So the child's interest in education is, it turns out, an interest that applies over the entire lifespan. And it's also worth knowing this allows us to get around both the normative weight problem and the paternalistic aims problem I talked about earlier. So if we revisit that, um, first, uh, it seems to be the case that supporting autonomy, we took that seriously as an aim that's distinct from just promoting it in childhood. If we thought this supporting role has some traction, you really can't think about it as a compulsory a compulsory educational aim that you would need to have in, in the basic system because educational interventions at this stage are really going to depend on the direction that certain citizens want to take their lives. And it's not simply a question of general development. It facilitates goals that they already have in view. Second, supporting autonomy doesn't necessarily have to be framed in a paternalistic way in the sense that you, uh, you cannot support autonomy by simply telling them that they don't know what is in their best interests in terms of the goals they have in life and forcing them to choose differently. Autonomy support is a basic aim, but that aim doesn't work by telling people what they should learn and why. Now, that's my attempt in the first argument to try and generalize a bit the value of education or to extend it from that um, compulsory stage across life. But we wouldn't want to then make the leap and say this somehow sets us up for a right to higher education. That would be hasty. We have to then explain, if we accept the lifespan value of education, why you'd want to have formal educational institutions responsible for securing that interest. And this takes us to uh, what I call the, the basic structure arguments. For those of you um, coming from a political philosophy background and familiar with Rawls, basic structure is, a, as you know, a key idea, but I'll put it in, in more basic terms here. So according to the basic structure view, there are a range of social institutions basic to uh, a liberal democratic society. And here we can include the law, the democratic process, maybe a market economy. And in principle, these institutions are there to secure our fundamental interests. Um, and now they by no means function perfectly, but on this view, they're kind of constitutive in terms of what makes a liberal democracy a liberal democracy. So in the book, I argue that we can look at schooling for children as one such institution for the reason that it secures their interest in autonomy in the ways that I've referred to earlier. On this view, then, basic education is, a, is an important entitlement, and schools are the social institution that play a key role in securing that entitlement or secure that interest. However, going back to that lifespan view I was talking earlier, if we think that autonomy matters, uh, sorry, if that education uh, matters for autonomy over a complete life, then one would think that one should have an analogous institution suitable for securing this right in adulthood. And we then happen to have one right at our fingertips, right? We have higher education institutions, uh, including universities. But on the construal that I'm offering here, it's just that what we have, right, the institutions that we have at that stage are relatively underdeveloped or unduly narrow in terms of being a basic institution or in terms of playing that role. And so if this is the case, we then need to dramatically broaden 
our conception of what higher education is. Higher education on this view is um, properly seen as an essential social institution in a liberal democracy. It's responsible for the educational support of personal, the personal autonomy of liberal citizens. And it is no less important than other basic social institutions. Okay, so if we're together this far, we may not, but if we're, if we're together this far, how would this conception of higher education be any different from what we do now? Well, this takes us to, to the last argument, which is the distributive argument. Okay. So if the proper function of post-compulsory education or higher education, we'll talk about the semantic differences later, uh, is to secure interest and autonomy over the entire lifespan, then this right must be claimable, right? In principle by all citizens. And in order to do this, a rights-based system of higher education would then have to observe three broad institutional principles, which I think do take us in a very different direction, right? The first principle would be something like non-inclusion. We may not exclude citizens from accessing the system on grounds of talent or merit or wealth, okay? So that's, that's key. Um, but to clarify, that doesn't mean that just like anyone can show up and demand to be admitted into like say a medical school. What it does mean is that there needs to be institutional space in the system to meet people where they are in life, right? So the fact that someone can't claim it because the institutions are out of reach, that's not an excusing condition. The institution has to meet them where they are. Secondly, uh, it would have to represent adequate options. So the system should support a range of worthwhile activities suitable for citizens of liberal democracy with diverse talents and interests and ideas about how to live. An adequate range would, at a minimum, uh, have to be wider than employment. And then lastly uh, is full public funding. And full public funding, I argue, is necessary for the adequate fulfillment of the first two principles. It's necessary for the fulfillment of the other two principles because non-exclusion, private fees take away higher education as an option for many, right? Just takes it off the plate. Um, for example, people, uh, sorry, that's fine. And then adequate options. Um, it's necessary for the adequate options condition because future employment is not the only self-determined goal that education should be responsible for supporting in under this conception, right? So um, you could imagine someone who's much further along in life, they're at a, a, a senior stage of life, they're not going to get a very much economic value from accessing the system at a late stage. But that's fine, because to see the system in human capital terms would, would almost be besides the point, right? If that's their reasons for claiming the right, that's fine. But if, if they prefer to take, you know, they, they want to do other things with their life, that, that's also fine. Like, it doesn't have to be contingent on the human capital argument. It would be like denying um, a senior citizen health care on the grounds that they won't use that improved health state to compete for high paying jobs, right? That's not the point of the health care fundamentally. So those are the three distributive principles that follow. And then lastly, I'll kind of put a couple of things together before I move on to ob objections. So once we put these three arguments together, I think this gets us to a rights conception of higher education that would consist of the following features. So we would have to see it as a basic institution continuous with basic education. It's something that's just as much a key part of the infrastructure 
of a liberal society is, say, schooling. Um, the institution would have to be seen as responsible for what I've called an autonomy supporting education. And by that, I mean that it is going to focus on opening up the options or circumstances in life around the person. And then finally, it would be something that helps citizens access an adequate range of options in life. And that is, it supports autonomy by making a certain range of options in life choosable in the sense that it provides the knowledge and skill that gives us a decent shot at successfully participating in those activities. Now, here's the rub. Um, I think at this stage, we would probably want to put quotes around the term higher education, as I do in the slide, because while I think it would certainly contain or include uh, universities and colleges and similar three to four year degree granting institutions, it would have to contain or it could contain a lot more in principle. And I'm actually fine with that. I think that's a, I see that as a good outcome. And that takes us to objections. Although I'm not sure how are we doing for time? Good. Yeah, not sure. Your objections. Yeah. Okay. I mean, maybe we'll, what maybe I'll do in terms of time is part of the reason of running to the objections is that they, they're helpful to illustrate, you know, the, the argument operates at a fairly high degree of abstraction. I have to run through a lot of the details of the argument in a short period of time, but the objections, I think, do a really good job of kind of like forcing me to concretize this a little bit better. So I think what I'll do is just talk about the unequal moral concern objection. And I have to credit uh, my colleagues here. Uh, these are based on objections in a forthcoming issue of the journal uh, Theory and Research in Education. So, um, and this is the uh, objection set out by uh, Philip Cook. So I'll, I'll deal with this one and then maybe we can move on to the discussion. So Cook argues, or he points out that for a lot of people, the decision to drop what they're doing in their lives and, and go off to get a higher education can be a really tough decision involving some stark trade-offs for people that have obligations to family or to community. Uh, and he gives the example of someone that declines to take advantage uh, of this so-called right to higher education in order to, say, care for a loved one. And this choice, of course, would entail a loss of some income or standing or opportunity. We can frame it the way we want. Um, but they wouldn't get any compensation for uh, not claiming their right to higher education. It's more, okay, we, the right is there for you. You didn't claim it, but that's okay. Um, meanwhile, we would have a system of free and open higher education for those that are willing to be a little more self-interested, right? They're not as torn by this and they're happy to go off and climb the ladder. The problem, he thinks, is that the argument for the right to higher education involves a kind of unjust distribution of moral concern arising for the right. So we would have maybe, he says, posits a world in which self-regarding citizens have an entire educational institution designed to protect their right to maximizing their own benefits, while other regarding carers, for example, or people who are really committed to their communities, um, are left holding the bag, right? And so he asks, fairly, I think, where's the justice in that, right? Okay, so how do, how do I reply? Well, the prominence, I think, of, of professions like childhood education and nursing demonstrates that knowing how to, to care for others can um, 
be key to a number of worthwhile social forms and activities. So based on the principles that I articulate in the argument, I see no reason why citizens cannot make a legitimate claim on educational resources that provide them with the knowledge, understanding, and skills that can help them care, say, for a loved one. Community health check-ins, for example, that also include time for instruction and supportive care seem fully sorry, within the right scope. If anything, I think the right to higher education would warrant uh, a much needed uh, distribution. Um, I lost where I was on that because I skipped ahead, but oh yeah, here we go. You got away from me. Um, so I think what the argument shows is that we, we shouldn't think of the right to higher education least on the account that I'm giving, as simply being about allocation through brick and mortar institutions in three to four year degree programs. Um, I see no reason why we can't imagine a right that can be institutionalized and allocated in different ways. And I think that's actually one of the key themes to a few of the objections here. Um, but given the time, I think I'm going to leave that where it is. And if we want to open it up for discussions and questions, we can. In the meantime, thank you very much for listening. And again, I appreciate you coming out this evening. So yeah, look forward to discussion. Thank you very much. Should I shut this down? Um, I think maybe we should read it. Yeah, sure. Okay.